Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. All right, well, let's pick up where we left off here. And uh, left off with verse 18. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy. Again, military terms. Paul is talking to Timothy about the charge that he gave him. And what charge did he give him? What's the charge so far? To To charge them. My charge to you is to charge them to teach no other doctrine than what they have taught. And if you want to find out what kind of doctrine they're teaching, are they producing godly, righteous people? Or are they producing spiritual disasters? Look at the result. I, char- I commit this to, my, to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. The prophecies he's talking about is the, the, the words, the, the things that were told of Timothy, and what things were told about Timothy. What's he probably referring to? What was the question again? The prophecies concerning Timothy, what were they? He's a minister. That he is called to that, to that vocation. That you may wage the what warfare. All right, this is not the wrong war at the wrong place at the wrong time. This is the right war at the right place at the right time. The good warfare. The warfare that we're in as believers is the good warfare. There's no doubt about it. And Paul says, I want you to wage a good warfare. So that whole paradigm there of waging a good warfare and being commanded denotes what about the Christian life? There's no tiptoeing through the tulips here, right? Does the average Christian think they're in a war? No. No, probably not, right? We don't. You know, I, I hate to say that, but sometimes I don't catch on the fact that we're in a war. What's the war against? Satan. It's against a bunch of things, right? It's against Satan. He's, he's certainly an adversary. Our flesh, the world, the, the vain philosophies out there, all the idiocy that you hear on TV and in read. Culture. We're at war. And if we don't feel a war, what does that mean? If you're a soldier in a battle and you're not feeling the battle, what does that imply? You're either dead or yeah, you're, you're, not, you're not catching on to what's going on around you. Paul told Timothy, I want you to fight a good battle. When it's all said and done, I want you to be able to stand before Christ and get a medal. We should fight a good warfare. And then the operative thing here is you are fighting a battle. And in fact, it's interesting, you might want to do this just as you read through these pastoral epistles. In fact, I would suggest this. As you read through the pastoral epistles, keep track of all the times 
that he talks about sound doctrine. And find out all the times he refers to warfare, or has a, a military or warfare motif. And they're all over. You can't read 10 or 20 verses without him talking about some aspect of fighting, battle, war, commands. In fact, at the end of 2 Timothy, Paul says, I have fought the good fight. Hey, I fought it. Yeah. And he said, having faith and a good conscience. I want you to, Timothy, to have faith and a good conscience. Where did we read about that before? So what kind of teaching did Paul give Timothy? Sound, Sound teaching that produced. Yeah. And he said, Timothy, I want you to have that so that you can teach it to others. He says, because some have rejected that faith and a good conscience concerning faith have suffered shipwreck. What's shipwreck? What does he mean there? If you wreck the ship, you don't get to shore, right? So some people have made shipwreck. Because what did they ignore? Yeah. You know, and, and I hate to say it, but I, I know of people that they've shipwrecked their life. You look at their life and there's no evidence of godliness. There's no evidence of faith. Could they still be Christians? Yeah. They could still be Christian, but they certainly smashed up the boat. Because they listened to what? What did they listen to? Fables, genealogies. Stuff that leads to vain jangling, to arguments, to disputes over stuff that don't matter. And they missed out on that which does matter. You know, going back to the junk food motif, is it wrong for a, an Olympic athlete to eat a host of Twinkies and donuts? You can eat anything you want. As long as you don't want to win, you can eat anything you want, right? If you don't want to win, eat anything you want. You want to win, what do they eat? You know, they got it so scientifically, you know, they got, you know, every calorie that goes in they keep track of. To make sure that they are optimal physical levels of performance. If you don't eat right, you suffer shipwreck. Are of whom Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that may learn not to blaspheme. What did Hymenaeus and Alexander teach? Well, it doesn't say right here, does it? But whatever it is, it wasn't sound teaching, was it? And what did Paul do to them? Delivered them to Satan. What does it mean to be delivered to Satan? Turn them over to Satan. If you're removed from the... Here's the point. There's a collective protection we have in the church, isn't it? And if we're thrown out of the church, we lose that protection. And we're delivered to Satan for the destruction. What Paul said, he tell about the guy in 1 Corinthians, deliver him to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. 
that a soul may be saved? Now, note that Paul mentioned name. How'd you like to be Hymenaeus and Alexander? <laughs> of all the things, you've got to have your name put in the book of the Bible, millions of people read, and forever you're denoted as one of those who suffered shipwreck. Paul mentioned names. I had one lady in my class, she was mad at me because I called Ken Hagen a heretic. She got mad. You know, the Lord wouldn't call him by names. I, well, you know, Paul did. Hymenaeus, Alexander. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. Demas has forsaken me. I mean, he mentioned names. Everybody knew who these guys were. Paul mentioned names. That they may learn not to blaspheme, blasphemeo, to say evil, to speak evil love. Whatever it is they were teaching was not sound doctrine. It was evil doctrine. It was producing evil things. Um, by the way, it says here in the MacArthur Study Bible, Hymenaeus and Philetus were mentioned in 2 Timothy 2.17. Alexander may be the same guy mentioned in 2 Timothy 4.14. But these guys were false teachers that Paul pointed out. He sent a letter to Timothy and said, you watch out for these two guys. I delivered them to Satan because of their false teaching. Look, folks, it's serious. False teaching is serious. So as a teacher, how do you avoid false teaching? Okay. Now here's a question in... Before we go on to chapter 2, think about this. Let's, let's, in the past five years, how many things have I taught that aren't true? Have I taught things that are not true? Sure. Do I know what they are? No. Well, I can tell you I don't know what they are, all right? The point is, being a teacher, you know, we don't have infinite wisdom. We don't have infinite knowledge. We don't have infinite insight. And there are some doctrines of the Bible that are just plain hard to understand. And I think you all know that as you've grown in your spiritual life, you've changed your position on a few things. Now, on the major things, you have not, right? So it, it, it's not, when we talk about false teaching, we're not saying that everything you teach is 100% accurate to the, to, to, the, to the things that don't matter. We're saying it's the things that do matter, the eternal truths that produce godliness and holiness and righteousness, those you can't follow up on. Oh, you may be balled up on whether Nebuchadnezzar is going to heaven or not, but that's not going to make you godly or ungodly, right? That's what false teaching is. It's not, when we say someone's a false teacher, we're saying they're following up on the major doctrines. That's where they're, that's the problem. They may have a have a defective view of the sovereignty of God, but that doesn't make them necessarily a false teacher. Now, if you have a defective understanding of the deity of Christ, you miss heaven. That's a bad thing, all right? But that's what we're talking about. So whoever these guys are, whatever they did, Paul turned them over to Satan. He held them out as an example. Chapter 2, therefore I exhort, first of all, here's why I exhort you, Timothy. First of all, that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Evangelistic praying, right? What's Paul say that we are to do? 
What's it say right here? Pray. Pray for every man, especially for who? Those in authority over you. Yeah. Pray for your leaders. That you may do what? All right, now. Let's say John Kerry wins the presidency. What would, what's the attitude of the average Christian in America? God lost the war. God lost the election. The rapture's here. No. Joking aside. Well, would that be seen positively or negatively by the vast majority of believers? Negative. Negatively. All right. What should they do? Well, that's what this says. Now, what will they probably do? Resent, protest, get mad. Picket. Hey, look, you know what Paul said? I'm talking about believers. Because most of them don't know where Romans 13 is. <laughs> if you're eating spiritual junk food, you don't know that passage exists, right? You've got a hostess Twinkie in your mouth. You know? The whole point is, look, Paul's saying pray. Now, who, who, who was the king when Paul was writing this? Any takers on that one? What was he like? Was he a nice guy? He was one of the worst, most despotic, despicable, evil men. Right, ranked right up there. How many? Anybody name their kids Hitler? Adolf? Mussolini? Nero? No, I've heard. I've known of dogs named Nero, but not people. Right? Nobody names their kid Nero. Any Jezebels? Name your daughter Jezebel. Nope. <laughs> the whole point is he was a bad guy. And what is Paul saying you to do as a believer? Pray for him. Pray for him. Pray for all in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Now, honestly, folks, if, if we are persecuted, is it, is it because we're not praying necessarily? No. no. But generally what Paul is saying here, and I think this is what he's trying to get at, as believers you show respect and prayer towards your leaders. All right? Because if you're not and you're being disrespectful and you're being a problem in society, that's not a good thing. And I hate to say it, but most Christians today are pretty antagonistic towards those in authority. Well, Yes, they are, but they don't think they are, but they say that they are. And why is it? Why, he says, verse 3, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. God wants you to do this, right? So you want to be a friend of God, you want to be God's friend. Instead of talking about the government when God shows up to talk to you, what should you be doing? Praying for him. That's the heart of God. God doesn't need to know what their problems are. He knows what they are. 
God wants us to pray for our leaders. And why is that? Well, verse 4, who desires all men to be saved. So specifically, what do you pray for for your leaders? Salvation. Salvation. You realize that the problem with godless politicians is thinking. It's not their political viewpoint. That's irrelevant. It's the thinking that's bad. And the way you deal with thinking is they become believers. If they become believers and they understand biblical truth, the thinking part takes care of itself. You don't need to worry about that. God desires all men everywhere to be saved. Now, what does it mean to be to desire? He desires all men everywhere to be saved. Okay. Is that a determinative one or a desirable one? Okay. Let's wait. Follow. If it's a determinative one, what will happen to every man? You got universalism. So it's not determinative. It's the will of desire. The heart of God, let me ask you a question, is the heart of God to save sinners? Yes. <clears throat> yeah, you want, you want to be on, on the heart of God, you want to be his friends, you got to love the things he loves, you got to desire the things he desires, and one of the things he desires is that <clears throat> people be saved. Don't worry about the election business here, all right? Don't get on that tangent. Just follow the text. He desires, God's heart is to save sinners. Christ came in the world to save sinners. So God's desire is to save sinners. And the way he does that is by what? Truth. And how's truth made operative? How do people eyes how are people's eyes open? Prayer. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Why is it important that we pray that our leaders be saved? What's one of the reasons? There's only one mediator. You miss that, you're out. There's only one person between God and man. There's only one person that can bring us to God, Christ Jesus. There's no salvation in any other name. There's not multiple paths to God. You hear that today, some people saying there's multiple paths to God. I was just a new guy at work talk about how he believes in reincarnation because he got hypnotized. And it's the same guy that goes out in the woods and, and drinks and, and smokes drugs to get high with his friends to determine, he, well, you know, he, I don't think he's exactly an authority on anything. Yeah. How many media, the reason that God desires that we pray that men come to faith is because there's only one way to faith. There's only one mediator who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. How many people did Christ die for? All, all but not all, right? So what do you mean by that? Well, the ransom Christ paid is for how many people? It's operative for the chosen. It's effective for all if they would believe, right? This is the mystery. Just take it for what it is. 
The ransom that Christ paid is not limited in value to only the elect in the sense that its value is only sufficient for the elect. It's not. The value of Christ's death would be sufficient to save every human being that ever lived. The limitation is not on the value. The limitation is on the recipients. And that's a very important thing to understand. Because some people say, well, you believe in limited atonement, the big L word in TULIP, the limited atonement. Jesus only died for the elect. Well, yes and no. Yes, in a sense that only the elect will believe, therefore his death is only effective for the elect, but no in the sense that the value of his death would be sufficient to cover every human being. Don't get hung up on that. Accept the paradox. If God wanted to save every man, how many, how many men would be saved? All of them. So let's not quit, let's quit preaching the gospel, right? They're all going to go to heaven, right? God's will is everybody gets to heaven, everybody's going to get to heaven. That's not his will. It's his desire. And I don't know how to sort that out. I just, you know, I've got to take the text as it works and go with it. For which I was appointed a preacher and apostle. I'm speaking the truth in Christ and not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Paul says, I was chosen to be the preacher, the proclaimer of this truth. What truth is that? There's one mediator, and who does he proclaim it to? The Gentiles. There's not multiple ways to God. There's not your way, my way. You know, see, that's what we do. We live in a country where, look, you know, if you want to think that you're Moses, that's fine. And I don't have to think you're Moses. That's okay. That's over in college speak, you know. You can be anything you want, do anything you want. Who am I to tell you you're wrong? Well, God says there's one mediator, folks. You know, there's not your mediator and mine. There's one of them. You want to come to God? You go through the mediator. You don't bring your own. And Paul says the need to pray for men to be saved is that there is only one way to God. And because there's only one way to God, because of this, what I've been given, I desire, therefore, because of what I've just done, remember, text, context, 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 that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. So what's the male gender men are to, what are the men to do? What's he desire the men to do? In this case, what is it? To pray, right? I desire that men pray. Now, does that, does that mean that women are not to pray at all? No, because you got the 1 Corinthians 11 passage where it talks about when a woman prays, have her head covered, etc., etc., etc. You know all about those verses, all right? says when I'm picking on Brenda because she that was her paper topic but uh, the whole point is it's, it's not saying women aren't to pray Paul is saying again okay stop what is the context what is the context of this book no the context of this book key verse that you may know how to conduct yourself 
church. In the church, okay. Now, it's not talking about the home. It's not talking about your own personal Bible studies. It's not talking about how you're walking in the world or, or your friends that you hang with. It's talking about what? In the church. That's the kind, you got you to gotta get that. It's in the church. It's not telling women don't pray, but he's focusing on in the church, in the worship order of the church, when you come together corporately for worship, what are the men to be doing? Now, most churches you walk into, it's all the women praying. The men shut up. Paul's saying, I want men to pray. And how are they to pray? Lift up holy hands. The Jewish men prayed like this, with their hands lifted up. Now, what's that a picture of? No. No. How many of you have kids? Let me have a look. You had kids, right? Yeah, you had kids. Yeah, she had two juvenile delinquents. No, just kidding. She had two kids. And uh, they're. She caught. You no, know, she calls them in. Hey, come on, eat supper. And they come trotting in from wherever they are out in the neighborhood. And before they sit down, hopefully, what does she tell them to do? Wash their hands. And how does she know that they wash their hands? Let me see your hands. All right, what's this? Think of the picture, word picture. What is it? Demonstrate what? Clean hands and a pure heart. I got clean hands. Look, my hands are clean. And, that, and the word picture, remember the, there's word pictures about your hands full of blood? You know, it's like walking into God's presence to pray and you open up your hand and it got blood all over them. That's the picture here. The picture is the idea of men lifting up holy hands. What kind of hands are holy? Godly hands. The hands. And what are the hands a picture of? What is it in the Bible? What are the hands seen as? Instruments of what you do, right? So the word picture is if you're lifting up holy hands, that means your life is reflecting holiness. You're doing holy things. Your hands are clean. God can look at your clean hands and accept your prayers. Lifting up holy hands, not dirty hands. You know, when the kid comes in and he want, you know, he's got his hands in his pocket, you know, he's probably got crud all over him or something. And you make him go wash his hands. Wash your hands. And God is saying, you want to come into my presence and pray? Wash your hands and come in and pray. Lifting up holy hands. And in the like manner that I am doing what? In like manner. What's in like manner referring to? No. I desire that men lift up holy hands everywhere without wrath and doubting. In like manner. In like manner the women. In like manner is referring to what? Hmm? No. Huh? No. No. Read the text. No. No. 
No, that's not it either. <laughs> Paul is saying, Timothy, I desire that men pray, lifting up their hands. And in like manner, I command. So what's like manner referring to? In the same way, he's commanding men to lift up hands in that same way, here's what a women are to do. All right? Now, is that, is that sort of clear from what the text is saying? In the same way, in the same manner that I am commanding men to pray, in the same manner I am commanding women to do something. Well, what are they to do? Well, they're adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but that which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. What's he telling women to do? Does he tell, does, is he saying here they're not allowed? And I've heard this. Is he saying here they're not allowed to, to, to put on makeup? No. Not allowed to wear a ring? No. no, it's not saying that. That's not the point he's trying to make. The point he's trying to make is in those days, wealthy women braided their hair with gold, and that would be a distraction if they come trotting into a service with gold and pearls in their hair and everything else, getting all dialed up to go to the service, because that's a distracting thing in the service. Church is not a place where you show off your wardrobe. I, I know you are. It's not a place where you show off your wardrobe. Doesn't mean you go there looking dumpy. That's not what Paul is saying. But he's saying there are, and in those days there were, wealthy women could flaunt their wealth. And, and in those days you had the haves and a lot of the have-nots. And he's saying when you come into the, the service, notice what this says, what is this? In the context of what? The church, okay? In the church, come in in modest apparel. I, in my father's commentary, he said that some of the wealthy young women would spend the days in wages on the clothes. Yeah. I mean, it was very expensive. Yeah. Garments. And sometimes they were looking for husbands. They were trying to draw attention to themselves. You don't go to church, Paul's telling women, you don't go to church to draw attention to yourself, you go to church to, to draw attention to God. Now, generally, generally, which sex wants to just draw attention to themselves by getting all dialed up? That's a no-brainer. You know how long it takes me to get ready for church in the morning? You know how long it takes Donna to get ready for church in the morning? Five hours. All right, now... Look, just generally, just just generally. They got more to do, right? Yeah, all right. Paul is hitting at one of the, one of the issues, which is one of them, uh, and this pet free verse here, just one of the issues. And he, he, Peter hits it again too, right? In Peter, First Peter three, don't let your adorning be the only the external. Let it be the internal. He, Peter is not telling them, don't wear gold. 
You know, they're the, that's one of these evangelists that come in. They're the false teachers, the vain janglers, the people who think they know what they're talking about and don't. You tell women, don't wear your wedding rings, that's ungodly. The Bible doesn't say don't wear your wedding ring. But I'll tell you what, if you come with a wedding ring with a rock that big on it, that blinds the preacher, you've got problems. <laughs> well, what are they doing? They're over there. <laughs> Putting their hand in the pocket. <laughs> no. The whole point is, don't flaunt. The, Paul's trying to get at you're not there to flaunt your wealth. And, and, and even James talks about the guy that comes in with the gold-fingered hand, gold-fingered guy that comes in with gold hanging all over him. That's exactly right. It doesn't say... No. I mean, I, you know, God wants you to put on deodorant. He wants you to comb your hair. He wants you to look presentable. You know? But, but you, don't, you don't flaunt it. And the danger is that you flaunt that. And Paul is telling women, in the same way I'm commanding the men, telling them that they are to pray with holy hands, I want you to come in wearing modest apparel. So the hoochie mama skirts are... No, the hoochie, hoochie, coochie stuff are out. A while back, Alistair Begg did a very interesting sermon on the entire thing. Uh, the dark side of it. And I was mm -hmm. show, but it was, it was good. It was about that whole thing about how you come to church and how mm -hmm. the distraction was the biggest problem. The issue, the issue for men is distraction. Women can come in, dress provocatively, and be a big distraction. All right, and they may not know it because they're not distracted. You know, unless there's something you know a little funny with them. You know, they're not they're not distract. You know, women aren't attracted to other women. They don't know, so you need to dress modestly. All right. Yeah, yeah. Dress modestly. And then he says here, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. This is probably the most hotly debated passage in the Bible. All right. And I, I'm so archaic, all I'm going to do is just try to tell you what it says. And you can argue with Paul when you get to heaven. But what's it say? Let a woman learn. Now, first of all, you got to understand, the very fact that he said let a woman learn was a very avant thing in those days. If you've read the MacArthur commentaries, which many of you have to this point, that was an avant thing because most of the Jewish men said if a woman learns something, that's irrelevant. They were not even taught. Women didn't read in those days. They had no reason to read. The very fact that Paul would even suggest that a woman be taught anything was outside of the social norms of that day. And stop and think about it. In Christ, is there any male or female? No. Okay, now understand, that's Galatians 3.28. And that verse is not saying there's no genders. It's saying, in sight of God, in regards to spiritual privilege, there's neither male nor female, Bond nor free, Greek nor Jew. All right? 
God is not interested in your gender, your nationality, or your vocation. It's irrelevant to him. He's not saying there's no differences in gender, nationality, or vocation. When it comes to spiritual privilege, God doesn't care. That's not erasing a role, and it's not erasing the, erasing the distinctives. Because if you were to do that, if you were to say that there's no gender distinctives, then there's no racial distinctives, and there are no vocational distinctives, so you're just as equal to your boss, so why are you letting him tell you what to do? That's not what he's saying in Galatians. The context tells you what he's trying to get at. He's talking about spiritual privilege. But here he says, I want the woman to teach, to, to learn in silence with all submission. Where? In the church. In the church. Understand what it's talking It's not talking about this class. This class is not the church. All right? We are in the church, but this class is not the church. In this class, women are free to ask questions, to voice opinions, to discuss, to enter the discussions. But in the corporate assembly of the church, the woman, the gender woman, is to learn in silence with all submission to what? To who's ever teaching, right? Whoever's in authority. In the church, please understand, it's in the church. And then he says, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over man, but to be in silence. Now, how hard is that verse to understand? Unless you're Brenda, it's not hard. I'm, con I'm sorry, I got to pick on her a little bit, you know. I got to pick on her a little bit. It's not hard to understand. Oh, that's a good question. Does the, there, there, there are some that say, well, you know, this is talking about Ephesus. It's not talking about this church. He's just talking about the Ephesian church. In the Ephesian church, women are to not teach. Well, if you take that, um, take that, what about all the rest of the stuff he said in this? What do you do with the rest of it? So only in the Ephesian church men are to pray. And only in the Ephesian church you're to have these elders and deacons. And only in the Ephesian church are you to teach sound doctrine. You've just tossed the whole book out and just said, well, that's just first. So you don't need to study this book. You can all go home now. We don't need to study this book. Because it, it only applies to the Ephesian church. It doesn't apply to us. We just throw it out. Well, I mean, also Paul says, He's not saying, you know, only they are to do this. I mean, he says, I don't laugh. Yeah. Where he is currently writing from, he doesn't laugh. That's oh, there's saying. another one. There's another one. Well, it's not the Ephesian church. It's where he's at, he doesn't let them to teach, but it's okay for them to teach in Ephesian, Ephesus. And we're going to answer all of those in the last part of the chapter because the last part answers every one of those objections. And there are some that say, well, you know, what this is saying is that Paul says, I do not allow a woman to teach or to take authority over a man, but a man can give her the authority to teach, and then that's okay. All right? Why would that not be okay from this passage? It may be just too clear to see. 
You can't teach if you're not to talk. Let's be silent. What's he say? Learn in silence. I do not allow a woman to teach or to usurp authority of a man, but to be in silence. So if she's in silence, she can't be teaching because she can't give the authority. And by the way, is it your authority? Can you give authority to someone when you're not granted the right to give that authority? No. In the church, in the corporate assembly, Paul is saying, I do not allow a woman to teach, to have authority over the man, but to learn in silence. And, there, and, and you know, again, there, there's all kinds of objections to this. And we hear them today. Huh? But if he gives her the authority. No. Yeah. No, a man can't give... I can't give, if I'm the pastor of the church and you're in my church, I can't give you the authority to teach. Why not? Because it says you're to shut up. Oh. <laughs> 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 I thought it said, you know, <laughs> now, wait, I thought it means that you can give me the authority, and since you give me the authority, I have that right. No. That's not what that, it says you're to be in silence, you're to not teach, you're to be in silence. It says but. There's no but about it. It's, it says but right there. It says here, you are to learn in silence. Yes. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, but to be but, in silence. But. Yeah, but to be in silence. Instead of talking, you're to be in silence. It's saying, in distinction to teaching and having authority, you're to not do that. You're to be in silence. Did she get an A on that? <laughs> we had a great, you know what? I gave her an A because it was just fun to listen to her wiggle up here, you know? All right? The point is, I'm just saying, look, folks, I got to stick with the text, all right? If you don't like the text, you want to come with something else, I, I got to stick with it. I don't see anything in this text that says I can grant authority. I can't do that. You're to be silent. Yeah. Now, if I'm teaching Sunday school, mm -hmm. and the men are in my class, mm -hmm. now am I out of order? I would probably think you're on the edge of an adult. If you're teaching an adult Sunday school class. Yeah, men and women. Yeah, I, I, would, I would have problems with that. Well, it's really the woman's class, but the men... So late. I kick them out. Well, okay. I tell them go find a teacher of their own. What kind of men do you got in your church, anyways? The women, the women have the right right here. No. <laughs> now, now notice what it says here. Please understand. You can you can get some corollary truths out of this. Okay. Corollary truths are. Women are not to teach men, and implied in that is adults. It does not say women are not allowed to teach children. All right. In fact, women do a better job of teaching children. They should be teaching children. There comes a point when they pass to adulthood that the women should not teach children. All right. That should not be done. Or men, excuse me. It does not say women can't teach women, because later on when we come to Titus, we're going to find out that Paul commands the older women to teach the younger women. So one of the commands is that women who are older and mature should be teaching the younger women to do what? What's he say? To do what? To love their husbands, to love their children, 
and be chaste and keepers at home. That's what they're to do. They're to teach them. Yeah. So the women are to teach, but their role of teaching is to a different audience than the general assembly of the church, which is to be taught by men who are later on identified as elders. That's in the next chapter. We'll get to that next week. But don't you think there are churches that don't have very few men then they need to find a man to Why teach. Just pick them up? No, you need to get a man to do that. Yeah. I, I agree. You know, the problem is in our fallen world, we've screwed everything up so badly in a lot of places. I'm just saying, look, this is what God's order and design is. I know. I know you're pig headed. You don't listen. I'm trying to help them out. Yeah. And, and again, the reason the reason I would say, you know, in your particular, you know, if you're teaching a, if you're teaching a Sunday school class, you know, I, in the in in the perfect world, I would say no, you shouldn't teach the men. All right, but you know what, God ordained that men be the leaders. But what happened in Israel, in the time of the judges, he couldn't find a man, so he wound up with Deborah, right? And that was not because. That, that was a sign of judgment, actually. That was a sign that God is basically telling Israel, you know, you're all so pathetic, I'm going to get a woman to do it. That wasn't, that wasn't something to be proud about for Israel. That was something to be sad about because the men weren't stepping up to the plate. Same thing today. Men don't step up to the plate. The women step in. The point is you need to get to the point where you've got a godly man doing the teaching. You need to get there. That, you need to move in that direction. There may be some bumps and scraps along the way, but that you certainly need to have the understanding that within the corporate assembly, when, when people come together and worship in the church, that is to be led by the man who teaches the word of God. All right. Now, that, does that mean a woman can't sing a solo? Can a woman sing a solo in church? Sure, because she's not teaching in a solo, right? Can she give her testimony? Can a woman missionary give a testimony? Sure, she's not teaching the Bible. But if you stand up and say, we're going to have so-and-so open the word to us today and give us a sermon out of her heart, oh, you got problems now because you violated this text. I have a question. Um, assuming we don't, we didn't have verses 13 and 15, Some could say that the reason that you have verses 13 through 15 is to prevent it from being made a cultural thing. Because verse 13 to 15 says, For Adam was first formed, then Eve. Now, see, what happens is that some who don't like this teaching say, Well, you know, the reason that women aren't to teach men is because of the fall. You know, Adam and Eve, they're in the fall, they really mess things up. And that's where you have the battle of the sexes begin, right? Where it says that the woman will have desire of the man, but he shall rule over you. And that you have that whole battle now going. And since we're all Christians now, and that reverses the curse, and we're all in the body of Christ, then that thing that Adam and Eve messed up and we're under the curse, that's removed. So now we're back to where we were before the fall. Well, what is, what is, how does this answer that? 
before the fall were Adam and Eve completely equal in terms of role? No. 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 And how do you know that? God made Adam first and created the woman to be a help meet. Paul goes back before the fall. So you can't say, well, the fall is what messed it up, so we need to get back. Look, before the fall there was this order. This goes back to the time of innocence. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Generally, generally. Which sex is most easily duped? Me. Generally. Me. She's being just difficult today, you know? Remind me to knock her grade down a point. No, I'm sorry. No. Generally. General, I'm just saying, generally women are more easily deceived than men are. Generally. All right, and, 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 and what we're talking about here, how was Eve deceived? The serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety. He, 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 he deceived her, okay? You look at all the major religions, all the major cults. You know what's behind almost every major cult? Male or females? Females. They're behind most all of them. Even though they might have a man, the female was the driving force in a lot of these. Seventh-day Adventism is a female. Ellen G. White. Mary Baker, Glover, Edison, Patterson, Pye, Fry Ford, whatever, Christian science. You know, a lot of them. Jehovah Witnesses. Uh, uh, look, I'll tell you what, look at the charismatic movement today. Who's running it, men or women? Women are running it. The, the general, the general, all I'm saying here is that generally speaking, generally, women are more easily deceived than men. And Eve was deceived by the serpent. Adam knew what he was doing when he ate. Eve didn't. Now, technically, which one was more guilty? Adam. When did the world fall into sin? When Eve ate or when Adam ate? When Adam ate. And all Paul is saying is that, look, the reason I'm saying a woman is not to teach is twofold. One, Adam was first formed, then Eve. Secondly, the woman was deceived. And women are more easily deceived and swayed by emotion and by, by things than men are. That's just the way God's wired is. All right? So when it comes to the preaching and teaching in the church, God has reserved that for the men. Not because men are necessarily smarter. You know that. All right? All right? It doesn't mean that. And it doesn't mean that, that, that women are necessarily dumber or weaker or that every woman is gullible. That's not what it's saying. God is just established in order. That's all. And he's done that in the home. Who's the head of the home? The man or the woman? The man is the head of the home. He's responsible before God for the spiritual condition of that home. That's his responsibility. Well, we have to maneuver him into that. And see, you don't. Say, <laughs> boy, I'll tell you, Paul would be happy. He's just turning over right now. No, he's not. I'm joking. 
Yeah, and, and the point, I think you're making a valid point. And the valid point is this. If you do it for him, he'll never do it himself. All right, if, you have, if you're in a church and all you're doing, you got a bunch of men who aren't taking a leadership role and who are abdicating to the women, and the women just allow that to happen, you're not helping the situation. you got to somehow quit it and force them into doing what they need to do. Because if not, they're never going to do it. They're never going to take that. Took 20 years for you to get him around here so no. he could be Yeah, he, he's, he's responsible, not you. I know. She just nagged him to death, you know, just I nagged him to death, you know. Yeah. Yeah. What, what, what about a situation? I mean, maybe this, like Kay Arthur in precept studies, and she's teaching women. I mean, how do you find mine that, I don't know if she teaches men, too. I know she. K, K is a problem to me because I think, she, my opinion, my understanding is she crosses a line. That's me. Now, technically, does she do that in a church setting where she's the pastor of a church? No, she does not. All right. So I can't, you know, I'm not going to, you know, split a hair and technically say that, you know, I, I, I have problems with it. Now, can I benefit from some of the things she says and does? Well, yeah, you know. By the way, can God bless a church where the woman is preaching? Yeah, because it's not necessarily the woman, it's the word that does the business, right? But Paul is saying this is the pattern. This is the, this is the optimal pattern. The woman is to learn in silence within the corporate assembly because she was deceived. And, and I'm telling you, just psychologically, I hate to use that because got Seth, but psych, psychologically, psychologically, Seth, are the healthiest marriages a marriage where the man is the leader or the woman? Woman. See, he didn't even need to think about it. What did he say? Almost every marriage is messed up is because of the man. Yeah. Say what? Almost every marriage is messed up is because of the man. Oh, yeah, I agree. When you do marriage counseling, always say the man. Well, what happens when you do? Because you're disconnected. Yeah. He's misleading. Yeah. He's misleading or not leading at all. Yeah. And see, here's the point. The point is, and here's the whole point that you need to realize. You're to do your part regardless of what the other party does. Right? Ephesians says, I'm to love my wife as Christ loved the church. I'm not to love her as Christ loved the church only if she submits to my authority. Right? I can't do that. I can't take that tack. I have to love her regardless of whether she does it. And the woman needs to submit to the leadership of her husband whether he loves her or not. That's her responsibility. And she's to pray for him, that God would do a work in his heart and life. And, you know, maybe it'll take a while because, you know, men are kind of stubborn and hard-headed, you know, you can't tell them anything. But you need to pray that God would... I'm having fun over here. This is just too fun, you know. Dripping faucet on a rainy day. You know. So, so the whole point here is that in the corporate assembly, in the church, and from other passages in the home, the woman's role is one of submission. 
Her standing is one of equality. Her role is one of submission in the church and in the home. And you say, well, that's not fair. Look, that's the order. And I'm telling, you know, women, I, you know, I, the problem. Yeah. Um, and this was something else that Paul dealt with with women being out of order uh, as far as uh, talking in the water mm -hmm. when they weren't supposed to be talking. Well, Corinth was chaos, and that's you're talking about the Corinthian passage. Yes, yes. And uh, there are some people who relate that. Yeah, I think there's. Yeah, I, well, I don't think you can take that passage. You can't interpret this passage in light of that passage. They're complementary. They're not supplement. Let's see. They're how can, they're supplementary, not complementary. It's not, you can't say, well, it's Corinthians is saying you're not to teach out of order, so this passage means you're not to speak out of order, but you can speak. Is that what you're saying or getting at, sort of? Uh, That's what they say. It's not the same thing. There's two different problems. There's two different problems. Okay. The Corinthian was a wild church. You had people speaking up, talking out of water, yelling, hollering, and most of that was tongues and everything else going on, you know. And, and that's a different issue here. Paul is saying in the church, the men are to teach, the women is to learn in silence in the corporate assembly, in the church. And I'm going to. And, and the reason is, is because I'm telling you that's the way it's wired. In a situation where a woman leads and a man follows. There's something that God has built into the fabric of humanity and the fabric of our psychology and the fabric of our being that makes that a bad thing. I'm just saying that's the way it is. You have a woman who is preaching and teaching in a church. You'll have a dysfunctional church. The men will never take over. The men will never do their job. They will never take their responsibility. They will run. They will hide. You'll have dysfunctionality. I don't know why it works that way, but that's just the way it is. Men, men will run. Men will run. That's just the way it is, folks. I'm telling you. That's how God's wired all of this. You know, you have a bossy woman around. Men just run and hide for the, you know, run under a rock and hide. You know, and it's it's not it's not right. That's the way we're wired. Where where it's appropriate is the man leads and the woman follows and and and. You know, in marriage, I tell people, if you love your wife as Christ loved the church, the submission problem is not a bad, it's a pretty easy thing. She's not going to, who, anybody here not want to submit to Christ? Well, if I submit to Christ, he might tell me to do something I don't want to do. Anybody not want to submit to Christ after what he's done for us? God did not design the woman to be the head of a home. You are not wired and designed to do that. 
you can function and do that if you have to. But that's not God's design. I like, uh, anybody here of um, um, Robinson? Harold, um, oh, I can't remember the name. He, uh, he does a Day of Discovery, Daily Bible, or what is the one at 7 o'clock? Haddon Robinson. Haddon Robinson. Haddon Robinson came to church. He did a seminary one time, seminar one time. And he said something interesting. He said, God made man to find a cave with a bear in it and to drive the bear out of that cave and take over the cave. And God created woman to find great love or great comfort in the love of that man. You know, I th you know, the bear cave, you know, club, you know, what is, well, it's true. God's created, men are created to, we're wired to confront, to take over, to, anybody see women football games? Who wants to see a woman football game? Well, why not? Get a bunch of women dressed up in all those pads and go out there and try to <laughs> throw each other to the ground? Who wants to see that? You know? Men are designed to do that, right? You know, that's what men are designed to do, right? The point is, God's we're just wired us differently. There's nothing, that's just the way we're wired, you know. And what does she say? Now that the husband has taken over and is 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 the leader, and she feels protected, she feels loved, she feels safe. Women are nesters, men are to ones that go out and you know confront the world, you know. Yeah, the man kill it and drag it home, the woman cooks it, you know? I mean... That's going good until the 60s. Yeah. But the whole point is these... And understand, all I'm saying... Look, you look at the Bible, it's just... It's, it's the role. It's not, it's not talking about your value. It's not talking about your intrinsic worth before God. It's not saying you're, you're second nature. You're, it's not saying that every woman is dumber than the, you know, the, the dumbest man. It's not saying that. It's not saying men aren't necessarily gullible now and then. When men are deceived too, right? But generally, these things are true. And God has ordained in his church the men are to lead. How many male apostles did you have? How many female? Now I listen to some. Yeah. What? Does that go with this? Let's think about it. spiritual leadership. No, I'm just asking, just an observation. In and of itself, no, but coupled with this, how many, when you look at all the apostles and all the leaders of the early church, how many of them were women? None. They were all men. Why? Why did Jesus just choose men? It was the role. Now, I watched some idiot, excuse me, some Bible scholar, who said that while well, the reason Jesus chose men is he was accommodating the male chauvinistic attitudes of his day, but in fact he was much more open than just that. Well, look, you know, did Jesus Christ give a rip about what people thought? I don't think so, all right? If it was right, he would have done it regardless of what people would have thought about it. So that's no explanation at all. That's just silliness. Well, how did they minister? How did the woman minister in the church? 
Well, you got the widows, right? We're going to hit the widows in chapter 5. Hospitality, washing the saints' feet, widows in the church. Widows ministered to Christ. Women ministered to Christ. They didn't go preaching, but they ministered. We have the one mention of the, of the sons of Philip. Was it Philip? His seven daughters who were prophetesses. And people say, see, 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 look. See, they had women pastors. No. What did the woman do? What did they do? What was, what was Philip? He's an evangelist. What did, the, what did his daughters do? They evangelized. If they evangelized women, or was there anything wrong with that? It doesn't say they were pastors of a church. How many early church pastors do you have? None. There are no church pastors that are women. And in fact, the qualification for the elder said he'd be a one-woman man. Now, now you're going to have real exegetical problems if you throw women into the mix. Because now you're saying the woman needs to be a one-woman woman. Oh, boy. She, I don't want to go there. All right. Wind up an Episcopalian on that one. All right. The whole point there, that's, it's the role. And you go to the Old Testament. How many, how many female prophetesses were there? If you read my paper, how many were there? How many female, how many women were known as prophetesses in the Old Testament? How many? She was one, so you got one. Miriam. And why was she, why was she known as a prophetess? She sang one song on one occasion after the... And she was called a prophetess. It doesn't say she did anything after that. Just on one occasion, she said something. Isaiah's wife was called a prophetess because she bore a son and he gave a name to that child, right? But it never says that she preached or talked. You know, there's, it's just on one occasion. And there were two, Noadiah, Noadiah was one and Abijah was another one. They were false prophetesses. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you believe that? You've got eight thousand. You've got. You've got. Um, let's see. Four thousand. Well, let's see. Maybe two twenty-five hundred years of historically recorded things in the scripture, and they just happen to omit any reference to female prophetesses that were all over the place. The problem with that is you're arguing from a from a position of weakness. But it says that you know Yeah, but here's the point. Here's the problem with that. To say that there's a lot you're allowed to have female prophetesses. Well, well, and, and, the, and all I'm saying is exegetically, you, you're on very slippery ground when you say, well, just because the Bible didn't talk about it, I can say it's true. No, I'm not saying that, but it's not saying it. If I'm the Holy Spirit, yeah, if I'm the Holy Spirit, just by itself, you're right. Just by itself, I can't make the argument. If I didn't have 1 Timothy, if I didn't have Corinthians, if I didn't have any of these passages, I could not argue that women prophetesses are disallowed just because they're not in the Bible. You're right. I'm saying this is something in addition to these passages. 
You also see it borne out historically. That's all I'm saying. It's borne out historically. And in the early church, there's no indication of women elders, pastors, teachers. There's no indication of women apostles. But did women have a prominent role in the early church? Sure they did. What did they do with Christ? Women, many say women are the ones that supported him in his ministry. All right? It's not that women have no role at all. It's that the role that they were given was not the preaching role. That's all. But they certainly had a, a pastoral role. They certainly had a role. And it doesn't mean that they weren't allowed to talk to their friends and neighbors about Christ. What about Priscilla and Aquila? They taught Apollos, right? Now, that was a man and a woman teaching another man. Wait a minute, I thought you said a woman's not to teach a man. Well, in the church, yes, but if you and your husband have a man come over and you're trying to teach them the Word of God, are you supposed to sit there and shut up? Yeah, we're supposed to learn science. <laughs> you know, that's different. That's not the church, all right? That's one-on-one. -on -one. Now, just in closing, as you look at this, how do, you, how do you do verse 15? Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, and self-control. Now, it's interesting. John MacArthur was talking about when he went to Russia and he was preaching through this passage here. And he had all this, I mean, this big auditorium there full of all these pastors from all over Russia. And he said, just so you know, the one thing it's not saying is that a woman is actually saved by having kids. And he said it was odd because it was just like, the reaction from the crowd was just, he said, he said, he must have said something wrong because I'll have all these women looking at their husbands and all this. And later on he found out that exactly what they were teaching in Russia was that women are saved by having children. All right. So he had to, he had to exegetically explain this. What's this passage probably meaning? She shall be saved from what? Saved from what? What did he just say? By accepting their role. By accepting their role. And, and, and when you look at this, what's the negative moniker the woman's been given? Child. No. Context, 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 context. Oh. Gullibility. Gullibility, deception. She was deceived. She was deceived, and her deception was the starting point for the plunging of the human race into sin. And she's going to be saved from the stigma of having been duped through childbearing. How's that going to save her? Well, part of it was the pain in childbearing. Mm -hmm. It's not eternal salvation, I don't think. Context. She shall be saved from the stigma of being deceived through bearing children if they continue. Who's they? The children continue in faith, love, holiness with self-control. So where do the children get faith, 
holiness, love, and self-control. Now, let me ask a question, folks. How many of you were more shaped by your father than your mother? How many were more shaped by their mother than their father? Okay. Now you understand the passage. How is the woman, where is the woman's greatest influence? Standing up and preaching in the church? In the home with her children to bring them up as godly kids? And how Brenda ever pulled it off, I'll never understand. I knew her boys. They were in our bus ministry. They were a couple of little terrors, you know, at times. But, you know, they came out all right. You know, that's the important thing. They came out all right. But the point is, what Paul is saying is a woman is saved. You know, the point is, look, guys, here's the thing. Do what God has gifted and enabled and empowered you to do. God has gifted, enabled, and empowered the man to be the teacher, the leader. He's not empowered the woman to do that. She is to be submitting to the authority of her husband to love him and to do what? To train her kids. That's her greatest influence. He's to be the spiritual head of the house, but, but does the man, is the man there to teach the kids? No, because in those days, where was he? He was out making a living, and the mother was with the kids. The mother was shaping those lives. The mother was the one who nurtured them. And if anything, remember what he says in Timoth to Timothy later on. He said, the faith that was in you that was first where? In your mother, Lois, and your grandmother, Eunice. Where's the dad? He was out chasing bears or whatever it was he was doing. The point is, where did Timothy get his great faith? From his dad? His mom. Look, folks, it's just context. You know, you may not like what it says or what look, you gotta deal with the text. You know, this verse is here in the Bible, it's there. And and the weirdest thing is to try and dance and jump and Try to make it well. I want a woman to teach, so I got to interpret it some way that will allow them to teach in a church. And you come with all kinds of weirdness and things, you know. You have a lot of women teaching in the church because the congregation don't have a lot of men in the church. And the, and and so, what do you need to do? You need to get the men to do the drills. I understand. I I understand. You need to get trained men. You don't want just some man to teach. You want somebody who knows what they're talking about. You know, and, and there may be, look, I admit, there may be temporary situations where the woman has to teach because there isn't anybody else. But that's not God's original purpose and design and, and as quickly as possible. You know, are there situations where a woman is the head of the home? Sure. Well, yeah, the guy's dead. All right. She's got to be the one. That, she's it. All right? God doesn't say, well, she's you know, not allowed to. Look, she's got to do it. She's the head. The point is, this is the pattern. And, and we should try to get as close to the pattern as we could, although we know that there are situations and dynamics that prevent us. That shouldn't, that shouldn't be an excuse not to try and work towards this. You know, that's the point. So, all right. I got through two chapters. We'll pick up chapter three next week.
thank you, Father, for this day that you granted us to study this word. And I pray that you would really help us to understand it. Thanks so much for it. Thank you for your grace that you've granted to us in Christ. In whose name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.